Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Helping kids understand their personalities and career choices that they're suited for. I think that would help students pick careers that are perfect for them that they might not have even thought about. As a journalist, I covered everybody's version of the truth. And then I covered the truth. Truth is facts, the things that can be verified. Your feelings can't be verified. Your parents have to understand that your health is more important. Pushing yourself or getting into a relationship or being pushed into a relationship that's not good for you, not the right person, is going to shorten your life, take away the quality of your life. It's not worth it. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Born to immigrant parents in Vancouver and raised just outside in Richmond on a blueberry farm while witnessing her parents rebuild a new life, my guest today understands the true meaning of hard work and resilience firsthand. By the time she was a teenager, she knew she wanted to be a journalist to advocate for the underdog and tell meaningful stories. At the young age of only 18, she impressively got her first TV job as an entertainment reporter for a national youth network before pursuing a career in TV news. As an award-winning top story TV journalist for two decades, she effectively shaped public opinion. My guest then went on to become a senior top story journalist with CTV News, Canada's top network, resulting in her eventually becoming an anchor. After 21 years in journalism, she decided to call it a career because very sadly, her dear mother had been suddenly diagnosed with terminal cancer. Wanting to spend more time with her, she put that phase of her career on hold. That was 2010. For the past 10 years, she has run her own public relations consultancy, specializing in crisis management and media training, working with some of Canada's top companies and executives. She's respected in business and political circles as Canada's new world authority and helps clients win with a unique approach that humanizes situations and takes the spin out of leadership, focusing instead on value and integrity. Her clients and their bottom line come out ahead every time. Based in Vancouver, she works in major cities across North America. Her clients include global brands, notable executives and law firms who have clients making headlines. In addition to keep her clients happy and successful in times of crisis, she also writes as a guest columnist for the well-known publication Business in Vancouver, notably named as one of British Columbia's most influential people by leading newspaper, The Vancouver Sun. I can certainly vouch for the fact that she has most definitely been one of mine. Today's guest is a slightly extra special one for me personally. All my guests, of course, hold a very special spot in my heart, but today's guest is not only an empowering female and role model for many of us, she also happens to be my cousin. So it is really with such excitement that I warmly welcome the lovely Rainy Bakshi to the Elevate podcast today. Hello, and thank you so much for being here. Why do you have to make me cry right there? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Oh no, we can't be, we can't do tears so quickly. <laughs> you silly girl. Oh, mm, such silly. a special place in my heart. Oh, well, we, you are the same for all of us. So this is a really extra special moment for us to have your amazing role modeling and your voice that we can share with so many others, which makes me, it's an honor to have you. Thank you. So I spoke briefly to you. Should we get into the story? I think it's a pretty, it's going to inspire lots of people. And I spoke a little bit in the intro about how, like me, we grew up in immigrant families. But what I didn't mention is that you're also one of five girls, which 
to me is girl power all the way. <laughs> Tell me what it was like in your home growing up with four other sisters. Well, my home wasn't just four other sisters. It was an extended family. So as you know, it was also my uncle, my dad's younger brother, and his family. So it wasn't really like the nuclear family of my parents and their five children, all girls, but we had an extended family for better or worse, uh, where we also had two male cousins and a female cousin who were like our brothers and sisters, as well as another uncle's son <laughs> who my parents were raised living with us. I can't even talk about what it was like to grow up with four siblings because it was this extended family where we never had a chance to experience what a nuclear family was like. And in an Indian family, especially where you have one family, like my parents' family with five girls at that time, and hopefully not these days in today's families, but at that time, it was frowned upon, you know, to have all girls. And so we were always kind of at a deficit within the extended family on my dad's side. You know, we're all girls and my parents always had to be a little bit tougher on us. And we always had to be a little bit more careful that we didn't bring disrepute to my parents because the whole extended family was sort of watching and involved in our lives. And I grew up with a lot of hypocrisy. Um, you know, the male could do whatever they wanted and us females couldn't. And it was difficult, especially when, you know, you have somebody like me, for example, who, has her own personality, a big personality like my mom had, and wants to pursue things, you know, that are outside of the box. And watching the hypocrisy and you're sort of just confused by it and you're pissed by it. But it was what it was because we learned that first and foremost, we have to respect our elders. And we did. We did it very well and we did it in a very beautiful way. And I still do to this day. Uh, I respect my dad's family, my extended family, my elders, a, a lot of respect. But it was tough. Tell me how that shaped your view of life today, then, in terms of the struggle between the expectations at home, keeping the balance right. Because I imagine you weren't able to let loose in the same way that other teenagers, particularly, can at home and rebel with their parents if you're being watched by multiple members of your family. There was no rebellion, at least on my part, but yeah, there was no rebellion without a massive consequences we loved my couple of my sisters and i loved the band duran duran and that was the first english album that we bought into our home and when we learned that they were coming to concert we really wanted to go and so we you know it was it was brutal because i somehow got nominated to be the person to ask dad if we could go to our very first rock concert you know, we were teenagers and so I somehow got nominated and I remember, you know, growing up on a blueberry farm, I remember taking dad outside and doing a walk in the farm with him <laughs> to somehow butter him up. And I remember being really sick to my stomach, but I ended up asking him if we could go to the concert. And again, giving my parents credit, my parents were very trusting of us and they were very soft with us, but they were also very mindful of the family that was watching our family, waiting us to screw up and so uh, weighing the pros and cons of it said you know I trust you guys and yes you can go to the concert which was huge for him to do for us and God love him for doing that because he trusted us and he supported us and he I guess at that moment threw caution to the wind and so we went to the concert we had a great time and we got home and when we like so where we lived we had two houses we had my uncle's house on one side and we had our house on the other and we had a very we had a a large lot in the front, as you remember, and it had gravel. Anytime anybody came home, you could hear their car driving over the gravel. So we got home. So we got the concert, we came straight home. We had nowhere else to go after that. Straight home, no problem. Mom and dad asked us the next day how the concert went. We told them it was great. They were happy for us. And then my uncle said to my dad, your daughter's got home really late last night because he heard the car over the gravel. And it became an argument about why did I let you guys go? You know, now I have to hear about it. And now my, the next decision I make to let you guys go, I'll have to rethink. And so it was kind of, sorry to say, shitty that we had to live um, 
in that way, but we did. And again, I don't hold any grudges either against my relatives because they were also operating within a paradigm of a South Asian culture and expectations and community where it was honor was first and respect was first. And my uncle is like our second dad. And so he's making sure he's watching for our reputations for the greater good as well. It was just a difficult upbringing. It wasn't normal. It wasn't a nuclear family. Yeah. But I can imagine as a teen, though, there might be levels. And I, I love the way you respectfully mentioned that there's no grudges and that you've got a lot of respect for the way they were looking out for you in their in their view. However, as a teen, especially as a teen female, was there a lot of resentment? Because I'm assuming the male counterparts at that time, getting home at that time, would not have been given the same reprimand. You're absolutely right. There was no reprimand for the male counterparts and it, there was absolutely resentment. We worked really hard on the blueberry farm in the summer, all of us kids, um, my siblings, and my cousins, we all worked really hard on the blueberry farm and it was backbreaking work. And we, every few weeks we would have a treat in the middle of the blueberry season where we would either get to have McDonald's or we would get Kentucky Fried Chicken. And we had to take a break for dinner, which was rare because normally it was, we took turns to take breaks if there was a big order. So we all got to take a collective break and we would either go to my house or to my uncle's house to have our, our, our special meal. And I remember, <laughs> I mean, I laugh and I, it's funny now, it wasn't then, but I remember my male cousin finishing his meal and I was sitting across the table and I finished my meal and he got up and left, but he left his dishes there. And like, okay, well, he left his dishes, whatever, not my problem. So I finished eating, got my dishes, and my uncle told me to pick up his dishes as well. And I said, no, I said, I'm not going to do that. I said, he's old enough. He can clear his own dishes. I'll clear mine. He clears his. Somebody said, well, dishes is women's work. And I said, blueberry farming is male's work. I'm going on strike. So I went home and I watched a Bollywood movie with my mom. And I said, screw it, I'm not going outside to work. It's, they just really decided female work and male work and, and that's it, I'm gonna sit inside. I think that strike lasted about two days before my dad said, you know, we kind of need you outside, so you better get, out, better get outside. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll get outside. But I, I felt like I made my point. Yeah, yeah, and did your uncle respect that? Yeah, I mean, you know, he never said anything um, bad to me or negative to me. No words were spoken about it. It was just sort of quietly done. And my mom was super proud. And that was it. Oh, but it's such a nice way of thinking about the fact that impact, you know, that sometimes people feel that their tiny voice or that their little self on their own can't make an impact. But your act there really shows that if you believe in something and you want to express it that you shouldn't be scared to but I think lots of girls are you know they they they, they feel or they they feel a sense of pressure that that if they do say something the consequences perhaps not in this particular case but I'm talking in a more general context that young females who don't think that their voice alone can make a change but I think that that example that you've just shared is such a brilliant one of highlighting how even small acts of speaking up can make and, and and acting on it actually, which I think the strike is is a great form of activism, which was just you know again shows your personality there and your ability to be a strong voice from a very young age. Tell me where that came from. Is that something you've inherently had right from the start? Something that was instilled in you by your parents? How did it become something that is a part of you? It's a bit of both. I. I think I was born with uh, a streak in me. I mean, when I was younger, I was always voting and rooting for the underdog. It was important to me that somehow the underdog have a voice. People that were disadvantaged or even animals, which is a big thing for me, that are disadvantaged, had some sort of a voice. My dad always used to say, you're too soft. He's like, you're always feeling sorry for people. His, he means empathy, but he doesn't know that word because of his language barriers. Um, but he'd say, you're always feeling soft and you're so soft and sorry for people and things and animals. And I, I always felt like uh, I needed to give a voice. And that did come a bit just from my innate nature, but also from my parents. My parents were always, as you know as well, my parents were always speaking up uh, for causes and taking a stand. 
And that's, they were great role models for me in that sense, watching them and seeing that they would always stand for what was right and what was true. Didn't matter to them if somebody was throwing stones in the face of that truth. They would always make sure that they were siding with the person that was in the right and in this on the side of truth and not wrong. And learning from that example of two parents who were willing to do that, especially my mom, you know, after my mom passed away, you, you think you have an idea of the influence that your parent has had on people, but I didn't until my mom passed away. And because social media was around, they, people were able to communicate with us directly and with me directly. But just posting a picture of her and the comments that would follow things like how mom changed people's lives or how she supported them through terrible times and how she rallied around causes and people. I, you know, it, it touches me obviously in a way that, you know, when she was alive, I never would have realized she had so much influence, but certainly after passing, you realize just she was a little lady with a big personality. And so I'm learning from her and my dad. And again, always just, you know, my dad and mom used to say when we were little, we'd come home from school and elementary school. And we'd be like, so-and-so fought with us and so-and-so said this to us. And my dad and mom would say, you know what? We're going to go to your school and we're going to find out who said what. And if you're in the wrong, you're in trouble, which I think instilled in me a sense of neutrality and making sure to be objective and listen to both sides and make sure you're standing on the side of facts and truth, not just because you're related to somebody, you have to support them. So learning those lessons was important to me. And then as a journalist, getting into journalism, which I knew I was going to do since I was a kid, but it wasn't the easiest path. I did it secretly for a while before my family knew what I was doing. But even as a journalist, and even now in what I do as a crisis manager, I don't believe in spin. I believe in truth and facts. And I can't underscore that enough. You know, facts are facts. And the you know, I'm going off tangent a bit, but I have a real issue when people say I'm speaking my truth. And as a journalist, I covered everybody's version of the truth. And then I covered the truth. I'm okay with people saying these are my feelings because truth is facts, purely facts, something can, that cannot be debated. Facts are things that can be verified. Your feelings can't be verified. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've said so much here. It's, that is beautiful. And it's such an important part of, again, a societal, cultural thing that in, in other parts of our country and our culture, that kind of hierarchy and caste system is such a big part of. So it's nice to see people breaking some of those molds and teaching the next generation the value of human connection. But you've touched on so many things just in this last couple of minutes, which I really want to go back to, if you don't mind. One of them, yes, being the fact that you pursue journalism. And I want to get onto that because I find that to be so intriguing but you said that you had to hide that initially first from your parents now is that because of societal pressures again down to the Indian family expectations uh, tell me a little bit more about that hiding my dreams and and starting my career in journalism absolutely was it, it was hidden because of societal pressures and because of extended family pressure there was a lot of pressure again on my parents because we're girls you know, we, we could do no wrong. We had to be on the straight and narrow, but there's this expectation, especially back then that you had to be, you had to pursue a traditional career, doctor, lawyer, teacher, accountant, the traditional things. And I knew I wanted to be a journalist and I just had a fire in me. And I, I knew that being a journalist, you can really rally for the underdog and tell stories and give people a voice. And you can even bring about justice for people. And I mean, there was all sort of good things that you could do as a journalist. Journalism's changed today. Don't get me started. Maybe that's a future question. But back then, I mean, I was certainly really noble about why I wanted to be a journalist. But I, my cousin, my older uncle's son, who my parents were, had raised, lived with us. And so he was effectively my older brother. When I, he took me to SFU, Simon Fraser University, to enroll me in my um, courses. So he, we enrolled me in teaching. And that's not what I wanted to do. So we enrolled me, we came home and uh, he announced to dad that Renu's been enrolled in teaching. And dad's like, great, done, Renu's going to university. It's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing. So a couple of days later, I drove myself to the university and I changed my major quietly. And I changed it to communications. 
in the meantime as well, I applied for a job with a youth television network that was across Canada and they were looking for a Vancouver reporter. And so I had one of my sisters record me doing a mock TV story, shipped Fed, Federal Express to my videotape to the TV channel and they hired me. So then I quietly started working for the TV channel at the same time as going to university. Incredible. So what, this was all under the wraps. No one knew about it. Nobody except for a couple of my sisters. Oh my gosh. Okay. Incredible. Love it. Not even my mom. It was funny because there was a Bollywood star that was uh, just starting out and he came to Vancouver to shoot a movie and I did an interview with him for the Canadian network because he had been recently named uh, India's most eligible bachelor. And so that made it a newsworthy story for Canada as well. Kind of cool. Akshay Kumar, you know Akshay Kumar, he was in town. And so I did an interview with him and the local Indian newspapers wanted to cover the story that I did interviewing him and local person TV personality interviews him. And I was like, oh shoot, I guess I better tell my parents because they're gonna either read it in the link newspaper you know, or they're going to see it on TV. Like they didn't watch the youth channel. So there was very little chance they would ever see me. So I remember that day I sat my parents down or my sisters did. I didn't. My sisters were in on the conspiracy with me and they put on channel 25, which is the youth channel. And they played it while I sat in the hallway, you know, of our house. I sat in the hall, you know, listening for their reaction. And they were just kind of shocked and stunned and they didn't know what to do or what to say. And then I came to the room they sort of looked at me and my dad looked at me and he said, what about your degree? And I said, but I'm still in school. And he said, oh, you know, I need you to get your degree. You really have to get your degree. I said, okay, okay, I'm gonna keep working, but I'm gonna get my degree. He said, yes, please, I really need you to get your degree. Okay, fine. So then I dropped out of university and didn't tell them. <laughs> oh my God. So all the rebellion that you didn't have as a teen, you clearly had. You've always listened to your inner calling, haven't you? Yeah. And if I'm going to be completely honest, I had a sister, my elder sister, who had flown over the cuckoo's nest and was doing everything wrong. And I'm sorry, I'm just being honest and, and bringing disrepute to the family. And I knew there was a lot riding on me and the decisions I made. So any rebellion I had was for the greater good for the family. It wasn't a rebellion that was just selfishly for me. I was thinking about the family, but I and this TV thing's going to go places. I was thinking, right? Love it. But also, I love the fact that we, okay, you're right. I've termed the word rebellion in, in context again, right? It, what it means in terms of rebelling against the family expectations and not following the arc that they'd planned for you rather than sticking to your own voice, which is in, its, in itself, I suppose, a, a type of rebellion, but one that I can see why you the, the justice that you sat, you saw in it and the, the greater good for other people, the amplifying of voices that you knew you were going to make was all part of driving you. And then obviously seeing yourself getting the success because lots of young girls might think, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be Aaron Brockovich and I'm going to be that or, you know, I'm going to be Mother Teresa. Lots of people want to do the noble thing, but don't always land the, the, the success with it. So I feel like you put the energy out there and then the world was feeding you reinforcements to say, yes, you are destined for this. But tell me then, though, this idea of them coming around, A, how long did that take? And initially, when you were sitting in that hallway, probably a little bit nervous about the reaction. Was there a huge sense of relief? Because clearly they felt a sense of pride when they watched you doing what you were doing. My dad and mom were on different paces on that one. My mom was a fan right away and she was supportive. My mom was always, whether it was secret or overt, she was very supportive of what I was doing. She was helping me pick my outfits and, and she was talking to me about my cadence and my voice. And, uh, you know, she, she was my biggest fan and she was also the person that I looked to for feedback. My dad took a little bit longer I ended up then, after being an entertainment reporter for a while for that youth network, I then eventually ended up becoming a news reporter with, as you mentioned earlier, one of the top networks in Canada. And my dad, obviously very proud of me, but still wondered if I should finish my degree. He used to wonder if I should finish my degree as a backup. It took a few years for my dad to finally stop telling me to get my degree. And it was when so we had a news anchor in Vancouver who was very well known for many decades. Her name is Pamela Martin. And 
Pamela Martin eventually came to the network I was working at and became our main news anchor. And my whole extended family were huge fans of hers from the 70s into the 80s, into the 90s. And now we're in the 2000s. And I was live somewhere on location and I was the top story. And Pamela Martin said on the six o'clock news, now we go to Renu Bakshi live in whatever city I was in. And that was it for my father. He was in tears. He was emotional. He was so happy. He couldn't believe it. My mom and my mom told me his reaction to Pamela Martin finally validating me. He stopped saying it all together. And then when he met Pamela, he couldn't even talk to her. He was crying. <laughs> <laughs> he was so emotional. He was crying. I'm so, that is such a touching story. So degree, 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 Pamela Martin tells you, your daughter's on, it all fine, eradicated, all those expectations gone. <laughs> I was like, Pamela, thank you. Oh my goodness. And the other beautiful thing is, she said Renu Bakshi. She didn't anglicize my name. I'm telling you, that made a difference too. It's, it was a sense of pride. The whole thing just worked really well. And I was like, yes, thank you. I know. I have so many visions as a child remembering the way my father would scream the house down to get us all into the living room to watch you do your report. <laughs> that, you know, so that pride, you, you were definitely an example and a heroine in your own way for so many people. And it was so nice to have an Indian face, an Indian female face on the news, on the six o'clock news, and for us to all look up to and say that, yay, she's making so many wonderful, you know, breaking ceilings really, which is, which is what we wanted. But, you know, becoming a journalist, it takes a lot of courage. It takes, obviously, you, as you explained, you, you had to do a lot of things, probably without even realizing it, maybe a sense of loneliness because you don't have your parents support right at the start. That initial courage is quite a lot. Would you say there were other great challenges also being a TV personality as a female? Some of the challenges obviously were, you know, I didn't choose the traditional path of getting married. And so again, my parents being super supportive, but uh, community members, not as much, you know, they were whispering behind your back and going to the temple was just hell on wheels because you knew they were talking about you. And, you know, on the one hand, they're showing pride that you're on TV, but on the back behind you, they're saying, oh, you're not married. So, I mean, but at the same time, there was community pride. So I would hear mostly from, from mothers with daughters saying, we're so proud of what you're doing and good for you and, and keep going. Mothers with daughters absolutely were, were supportive. But again, you do sort of know behind the scenes, you know, and then, and then rumors like, oh, who's she dating and, and that sort of thing. It was always uncomfortable knowing that because I never wanted my parents to face those kind of rumors and challenges. They had faced enough. They didn't deserve so I, that was always bothersome to me. But then fundamentally, just being a journalist was difficult because of the types of stories that I was having to cover. And so I, at a time in my journalism career, was treated for post-traumatic stress disorder because I was dealing with a lot of children dying, uh, being abducted, car accidents, drinking and driving accidents. And it was difficult, suicides. And that became really difficult for me the reason I got into journalism is because I have that bleeding heart and then to tell these stories and see them firsthand and, and see a child's body on the side of the road after he's been hit by a drunk driver who took off and there was back-to-back -back stories like that that eventually led me to go to my boss because I kept crying I was sitting at my desk always crying and eventually I went to my boss and I said I don't know why I can't stop crying he was tough on me but he was a great mentor for that reason and he, he, he closed his office door and he said, I understand. And he goes, you have post-traumatic stress. You need time off. We had a program, you know, where we could get help for mental health. And, and so I, I, I got some counseling. Were there other times that actually being a reporter as a female of color, you felt things weren't as they could be or should be? I'm going to be blunt about that. I was an impact player at CTV. Those are the words of my bosses. I broke more news stories than every other reporter combined. Those are the words of my bosses. But when I left my career at CTV, I was making less money than my female non-ethnic counterparts and definitely less than men. 
Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge issue even today. Things have not really come on, have they? So comparing the TV career to today's, to the career I'm in now, TV was very much uh, that glass ceiling and you hit it and there was, you couldn't go any further. Even though I was an anchor, I had excellent ratings. I obviously broke a lot of stories. I was an impact player and yet my salary never reflected that. But my parents always used to say to me, but the respect that you've built for yourself and for us and family and for the community means more. And they put it into that perspective. For me. You know, typical kind of Indian thing too, right? Don't worry about the money. Think about all the respect. And the, my dad still to this day says the respect and the name you gave this family, the name you gave the family, who needed a boy? You gave the name to the family. But dad, I still wasn't making as much money as I should have been making. That didn't matter to my parents. My parents it was more the respect. But this career I'm in now, there is no salary gap for me. There is no client in 10 years who has ever hired me um, or not hired me based on my gender or my ethnicity and has never called about my fee and has tried to bring me down in my fee. There is a world that exists where there is equality and there is parity. There is a world that exists where you are paid for your accomplishments and your expertise. And that world exists. And I found it after TV. I did not find it in TV. And then, and then uh, I read a book uh, by a, a former CNN uh, reporter named Gail Evans. And she wrote a book called Play Like a Man, Win Like a Woman. And so I read that book, and then I went in and asked for a raise. And I got one. And I got one, but it wasn't obviously equality, but I still got one. And I learned to change my language on how to approach things. And, you know, like I said, after I left the TV career, I didn't realize there was a whole other world out there that actually treated people with equality. There actually is. And I know there's a lot of discussion in the world about you know, there's not equality and we're all fighting for it and that sort of thing. But I'm saying that there is, there are corners of the world and industries where it does exist. And you have to earn it, obviously. Everybody does. I don't care what color anybody is, they have to earn it. But it does exist. And so in this new career, I mean, it's 10 years old now, but I've never felt like I needed to go and beg anybody for anything. Nobody's doing me a favor. It's nothing like that at all. It's all really equal people talking in equal terms. Yeah. But do you think that's because you had to carve that out for yourself? It exists in the BBC. There's all sorts of issues around there at the moment. There's all sorts of interviews coming out of that place. Other organizations that are government funded I, I or even more privately too, law firms, for example, female lawyers being paid or acting. If you talk about the, what's going on in Hollywood, the same movement around pay gap there exists. So you're right. There are parts of the world that you can find equality, but is it down to you to have to search it? And is that really fair? You're right. It is. It boils down to you having the gumption and the courage to know who your what your value is and going and getting it and, and, and coming in, knowing your value, not coming in undervaluing or thinking somebody's doing you a favor or you're up against something. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it eventually boiled down to just me being able to get it done and do what needs to be done without complaining or whining or crying or raising a stink about it. And so, yeah, eventually it does come down to just you being able to do it and doing it. And I don't know where that confidence for people would come from. Everybody has their own journey and they have to sort it out for themselves. But I found that confidence in my second career. And I'm very fortunate, touch wood, I work with top executives in Canada and top companies. And when I'm at their boardroom table, now their virtual table, but when I'm at their boardroom table, they don't treat me like I'm any less than anybody else at that table. We're all equal. We all bring our expertise and we're all there uh, for a reason. And there's equal respect across that table. And I just love it. And I really sincerely hope that people who are feeling otherwise find their voice and their way so they can find that equality because it feels damn good. Yeah, no kidding. And I hope it's conversations like this that other people and other young girls who are, might be exposed to these types of conversations will hopefully get the courage, the same inner voice and confidence to do what you're doing. And it's so nice to hear 
that you are sitting in a room now where you don't feel that because I think it's whilst it's great in your experience and that's also nice to hear because I think there's a lot of doom and gloom about boardrooms and a lot of females who feel underrepresented or undervalued or not listened to I, I spoke to someone recently who is a coach with Brené Brown and she was saying that if she's next to the male person that she's glazed over and the person next to her is the person they address all the questions to even if she's the person who's brought in the proposal so I think it's not eradicated by any means but I think it's nice to hear that there are improvements along the way it's definitely not eradicated that's for sure but I, I think it's heading in the right direction with all the social movements and the people are, are willing to open their eyes to a new way of thinking. And I think that's important. What would you say to somebody now, a young female who has same similar aspirations to you, feels the same sense of gumption to try and do something for the world and represent others and wants to pursue a career, either in your current media crisis management role or in journalism? What types of advice would you give and what types of characteristics do you think makes a good journalist? A good journalist does not take no for an answer. A good journalist has a sense of strong ethics, uh, a pursuit of facts and truth. A good journalist is somebody who um, isn't afraid of the hard work because it's hard work. And a good journalist is like, we call it shoe leather journalism, where you just hit the streets. You walk the streets and you look for good stories. You're not just sitting at your desk and waiting for something to land. And but you roll up your sleeves and you've got, you're just shoe leather journalism. You're hitting the streets. You're talking to people. You're, you're learning stories. You know, you're learning what's going on and you never know what peaks a story. I remember I had a, a, few days of research days at CTV because I was very good at breaking stories, but sometimes you just needed to give me a bit of time to find them. And so uh, Tom, the boss I've already alluded to, he gave me a few days off to research. And I started to, you know, do what I do, hit the pavement, walk, talk, meet people. And I decided to call a friend of mine, a contact of mine at, at um, WorkSafe BC, which at the time was called Workers' Compensation Board. And it's basically the government body that is there to represent workers and injured workers and so i just said i'd listen i said i'm having a slow news week and i'm having a research day i'm just like asking questions and again a good journalist asks good questions and i said i said uh i don't know i'll ask you a few questions and one of the questions was what's the main type of injury you saw last year like the biggest one injury on the job and my contact said oh, um, firefighters spraining their ankles. And I said, oh, I said, I guess that makes sense because they're climbing ladders with heavy hoses to fight fires. He said, no, no, you have it wrong. He goes, they're spraining their ankles because while they're waiting for calls, they're playing volleyball. I said, I'm sorry, what? He said, yeah, you heard me. He said, you know, while they're waiting for a call in the fire hall, they're playing volleyball and they're rolling their ankles and hurting themselves and they're off the job being paid by taxpayers for injuries and time off because they're spraining their ankles playing volleyball. So I said, excellent. That is a top story. Uh, everybody, every media in town picked it up then and covered it. And we ended up having the Vancouver Fire Hall change their policies about volleyball. And oh, I'm, I'm probably still the most hated person in the firefighter community. Yeah, but I also picking up the fact that you have to be extremely curious and have a very inquisitive learner's mindset in order to know where to start even looking, right? To asking the right questions and to to dig. And I think that part of what we do at Elevate is really important as well. I try and work really hard with my girls on challenging the status quo, asking why, you know, don't just accept an answer because a teacher's given it to you or a parent or, or anyone i think there's a there's a reason why being curious will lead to incredible breakthroughs you've got to be able to do that so i, I see similarities in the way that you express your research skills in what we're trying to do with our mentorship program and i'm also picking up from what you said about the hardships and the hard work that you put into it that resilience has got to be key not only because of the types of stories you're covering because that takes a lot of emotional strength but 
the idea that you may not get your first big breakthrough. It, there's a lot of, I'm imagining the word failure. I'm going to use the word failure in air quotes um, because I, I, I have a different relationship with the word failure, but uh, it can be perceived as hardships, isn't it? When you first starting out in a career that you've got to really prove yourself. You know, not every career is for everybody. So if you are a quiet, shy person who's easily rattled, then journalism is not for you. I think everybody needs to have a self-awareness of what their personality is cut out for, because not every career is for everybody. And I think if people learn that early on, and I wish schools would be better at not just teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic and all that, but helping people understand their personality better and what they might be suited to pursue so they don't waste time, so they don't get caught up in the, I don't know what I want to do for years and years. Yesterday, I was walking down the street and I walked by a group of people who were probably in their mid-20s. And this guy announced to his friends, he, they said, hey, how's it going? He said, I don't know, still trying to figure out what to do with my life. I'm like, you're 25, 26 years old. You still trying to figure out what to do with your life? But to that point, I wish schools would help hone that a little bit more rather than just sticking to the traditional uh, learnings, but helping, helping kids understand their personalities and career choices that they're suited for better than what at least what I grew up with in school. I think that would save a lot of time. I also think it would help um, students pick careers that, that are perfect for them that they might not have even thought about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing, because I think you were quite fortunate in knowing exactly what you wanted to do and nothing stopped you. And I love that drive and ambition that you've had. Uh, and you also spoke a little bit about the fact that there are people in the fire station that probably still hate you. So the idea that you're not always going to be loved in the in the job that you're doing because you're you're exposing people for right, wrong things all the time and that can create enemies, frenemies, all sorts. And you need a type of personality that, that can really take that. But Sometimes I think kids, youngsters, teens, due to society, due to social media, due to all sorts of different pressure, I'm going to use the word pressure, but expectation, don't know their inner self because they're too busy trying to fit into everybody else's world of them and their, and their view. And you were one of these people that put, were able to put a lot of that away somewhere and focus on your inner voice and pursue that inner voice. Whereas I think with all the noise around youngsters today, finding that finding time and allowing yourself to be mindful can sometimes be a challenge. Don't know if you would agree with that, but maybe that's why you get to 25, 26, feeling a bit lost, not sure. And you know, I love what Simon Sinek says. I quote him all the time, the idea of finding your infinite game and playing it for the long run and finding your why. Can, can, and sometimes it leaves even people like me in my mid forties feeling a little bit like, am I only just finding out what my why is? You know, <laughs> so I think it can be a tough one for for teens. And and I, I that one of the reasons this podcast has been such a great thing. I think it offers different voices and different experiences and different stories for people to hear that it doesn't have to be one way. It doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to go to university in order to get your degree, in order to get the job of your dreams. You can do it in your ways and find ways around that. In fairness, uh, I'm not a parent. And so I'm talking as a non-parent and it's easy for me to say what kids are doing, aren't doing and should be doing. So I can't really comment on that part. I can just sort of be the armchair person saying, oh, and kids should do this and this is what they should learn. I really don't know. I don't have children. <laughs> but that, <laughs> let, let, let's, let's talk to that because in, in some ways, I think what you have done is chosen to live a life that is true to you for yourself and and maybe maybe you can talk me through this because in some respects indian culture might call it unconventional because while you're doing the most amazing things with your dog and you're a dog mama you've not gone down that road of settling into what many in traditional indian girls might be expected to do which is to you know get yourself married have some children, maybe even have a big house with a white picket fence somewhere for good measure. But tell me, was this liberating for you? Was it onerous for you? Was it a challenge at first? How can you speak to that for us to help other young Indian girls, particularly girls and not Indians? Because I've heard that living, I'm living in Singapore now. I speak to lots of locals who find the same level of pressure uh, or expectation put on them to do the same thing with education and securing themselves a good husband. And I put the word good 
in quotes because what they consider, what parents might consider a good husband may not be <laughs> what other people find good. So tell me a little bit about your story if you're okay to do so. It was tough at first, you know, when you're marriageable age, again, the extended family being so influential, you know, it was tough to say no to the traditional path of no, I'm not going to have an arranged introduction. <clears throat> Marriage may not be for me. I had relationship back in those years and the pressure of that relationship was brutal. Um, because I, I wanted to make sure like, you know, everything was right for my family. And then when that relationship broke up, it was awful because what was I about to put my parents through in the eyes of the public? That breakup was brutal. It, it nearly flattened me because I was so concerned about what I had done now to my family by first introducing this guy, you know, and then it breaking up. I remember, I mean, for me, it was just I went through a depression and I look back now and I go, why was I even depressed over this guy? Oh my God. But it, it had nothing to do with the guy. It had everything to do with what my parents were going through and especially my dad. And, and I felt bad about what I had done and, and I didn't know how to overcome it for him. And it ended up sidelining me and myself and it being just a horrible period of my life. Whereas if, if, it ha if I didn't have that family pressure, then it just would have been a breakup, you know, break up. But this was like the hill to die on. It was the hill to die. On, and that's what it became, unfortunately. Um, so it was hard. So once we ever overcame that, then the conversation about marriage ended. And I was glad for that because I was like, yeah, I'm just, it's just not, I want to pursue my career. And then it was also at a time when my dad was seeing how much respect his respect was rising as my respect was rising in television and he was super proud and so that expectation of me became replaced with a career more of a career focus which was great and it took a lot of pressure off me and that was wonderful I would advise kids now i mean please like don't ever get forced into a relationship that's not going to work for you fundamentally. It will make you sick. It will make you physically ill. I have a friend who's a gastroenterologist and he sees women with stomach diseases all the time. And he says the number one question he asks them before he starts doing his diagnostics is, are you in a relationship? And they'll say, yes. And he says, what's the nature of your relationship. Is it healthy or is it toxic? And they'll say it's toxic. And then he finds disease in their stomach. Mm, it's all related. Yeah. He says, this is not a coincidence. You're so stressed out. Your stomach is churning and it's churning and it's churning to a point where you're actually making yourself sick. And so my advice to young people is like, don't feel that pressure. Your parents have to understand that your health is more important, pushing yourself or getting into a relationship or being pushed into a relationship that's not good for you, not the right person, it's going to shorten your life. And it's certainly going to take away the quality of your life. It's not worth it for the show and tell of it. I think my view on that is I feel girls are feeling more empowered to at least voice their desires, whether or not they act on them, I don't know. But I feel that there's definitely conversations happening in greater degree than they used to with parents and parents too. I, I hope that they're listening more. On that note, I would love to know, they probably know this already. We, I love to end my interviews mostly on two questions. One, what do you hope to see change for girls in the future? And secondly, who are your role models and why? So what I want to see changed, I'm going to talk more global view. I'm really bothered by the way girls are treated still around the world, lack of education, abuse, females being operated on uh, so they don't have any pleasure in life and all those nauseating things. And I'm very bothered by all of that. I, I, I want to see that change in my lifetime. I don't know if it will. We have so many backwards cultures in this world that are still treating girls so badly. In fact, I, there's one movie I just watched very recently. I mean, I'm late to the party because this movie was released in the 90s. It's a movie with Sally Field and the movie is called Not Without My Daughter. I highly recommend it. It's on, uh, not Netflix, I think it's on Prime. But anyway, it's on one of the streaming channels. Just find it. 
not without my daughter. And it's about a, an American woman who married an Iranian Muslim during the times of the revolution. And he's, he's a doctor in the United States and they had a daughter. And he, under the guise of taking a family trip to Iran, tricked her into going, but his plan was to live there forever. And it's based on a true story. And this woman eventually wrote a book and eventually became this movie. And I watched this movie just a couple of weeks ago. And, and as much as that was in the, you know, back when the Iranian revolution was happening, you can't help but know that those things still happen today. And so I, I, in my lifetime, I would like to see that change for girls and for women. And I would like, you know, all girls to have, an access, have access to education. So that's one thing I hope changes for girls, again, on a global worldview. Um, and who are my role models? That's an easy one. Now, I've talked about my mom. Well, she always was. She always will be. God rest her soul. She was 64 years old when she died. And Ramita, you know something about that. Your mom was far younger. But mothers are mothers, are mothers, are mothers. And, you know, if somebody dies at a young age, um, 64 is young. It's hard. It's difficult to get over. You never really get over it. You never accept it. But one thing that will remain eternal is that my mom was and still is my number one role model. She had it tough. She remained a very dutiful Indian wife while having a sense of independence and rebellion, if you will, rebellion in the sense of mentoring other women and young girls. And she still had that part of her and always giving and always smiling, even through her own hardships. And oozing warmth. and Yeah, she was always full of love and warmth and and all of that, everybody remembers that about her. But when you have a woman who was struggling so hard in her own life, but never letting it show, but always being the guiding light and laughter for other people, having that perspective. I mean, I learned a lot from her on that. And I, I just am so grateful. We were the lucky ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like having an angel on earth. It was definitely part of the guidance that I think lots of us will hold and her legacy will live through all of you, I'm sure. And I'm sure she's still smiling down with pride listening to her daughter talk about her amazing achievements and incredible inspiration, which you really are. And that's uh, probably the most beautiful place to end the interview on. I can't thank you enough, Didi, for coming onto the podcast, for talking to me today, sharing your raw and authentic story a voice that I think will resonate with so many young girls out there thank you for having me Ramit that's lovely and it's just so lovely to connect with you I appreciate it I love what you're doing I'm really proud of you it's just beautiful what you're doing trying to elevate girls and women and, and women who don't have a voice girls who don't have a voice which is so important and so good for you and I can't think of a better person to do it I'm really proud of you I really am thank you for taking the time for being here and that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.